Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on uh, June 14th, 2020. Happy first anniversary. Oh, yeah. Granger and, Granger Nico. and Nico. There you go. A year ago, we were in the throes of... A heat wave. Heat wave <laughs> and the preparation of... Uh, the wedding. Wedding events. Hot and humid. I, myself, yeah. was grilling the skirt steak. Oh, right. yeah. Well, that right. was the night before. That was or the night before the yeah. family. Yeah. The family dinner. Who better to grill the skirt steak than you? Yes. This is after you shooed the mares and basically uh, shooed the mares. Yeah, and, you it, know, really swept <laughs> out the uh, you know the stalls for uh, all the horses and did all the other heavy work. Right. All right. Moving right along here. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, we uh, we continue to be in the throes of. COVID-19, right? right? The pandemic. No, we're not sick. We're not no, sick. No, no, we're fine. But We're just, uh, but just reacting to all of our limitations, which are gradually being lifted. Yeah, look, our limitations aren't much. But, you know, we would, every time we drive on uh, Route 1, we go by Trader Joe's. And uh, Trader Joe's never fails to have a huge line outside. Now, we have run into a very little bit at some of the markets we go to, a line no, we've had in. some real annoyances at places well, like Whole Foods. Whole Foods. But uh, we drive by. I always look at Trader Joe's yeah. because that, for me, would be the mark of improvement. Well, okay. If there were not a line, it, you know, if people were being allowed in a, in a normal, crowded right. way, that means everything's over. Well, or at least if, uh, so, you know. So there's no improvement. The line has diminished. If that's the way you measure it. It's no improvement because there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about the line to Trader Joe's. Yeah, apparently we are neophytes. Yes, well, at many things. We do at many, many things. That's true. But uh, we just blindly go to the store yes. and hope for the best. Well, we do fine. But... But at Trader Joe's, apparently that what has emerged that there are people who live near Trader Joe's who tweet out information about when there's a line and when there's not a line at Trader Joe's, and they have followings. The article in the uh, journal, uh, it was headlined, Spies Track Lines at Grocery, and it starts with a situation where a rabbi is, uh, picks up a tweet which said there's no line at Trader Joe's. He, said, he says it's like the Red Sea is parted. He's so excited. He gets together. And he he's goes on to, his way. He's on his way. And there are other people who live near other Trader Joe's who have the same practice, who are keeping people alert as to when they have the opportunity to go to Trader Joe's. So it's just, uh, it's the reverse sign of the apocalypse no longer being upon us. The apocalypse is still here. Uh, but the question, too, is what does Trader Joe's have going for it? And the Wall Street Journal sums it up in the last paragraph with a quote that says, Trader Joe's is like a nightclub, but for groceries. So, uh, I've been to Trader Joe's once or twice. I never picked up on that. A nightclub. No. But right. for, for groceries. Similar article in the Times about uh, more than milk and sanitizer, New York wanted kettlebells. And it turns out that... So people are tweeting about when kettlebells are available? Not exactly. But they, it, it's another uh, situation where you have to strategize in order to try to get what you want. And apparently when all the gyms went down, people wanted exercise equipment. And more than anything else, they wanted kettlebells. Uh, not my favorite, but uh, I can see where people regard kettlebells as somewhat versatile. But apparently, uh, an analytics firm prepared a report that said uh, weight training is the eighth fastest growing category last month, ahead of milk, paper towels, hand sanitizer, and toilet paper. So much so 
that they write in the Times about a foundry in Rhode Island called the Cumberland Foundry, which basically set themselves up to change their equipment to make kettlebells to try to fill this demand, which is a hard thing to do if you're a foundry, apparently. And now they're knocking out 40 kettlebells a day, which is a well, lot. Well, how hard is it? You just make the model, then yeah, you make the mold. Apparently, it costs $10,000 to make a real, oh, sorry, $100,000 to make an A-plus model. And uh, you need some other equipment. They managed to do it in kind of a, you know, short, uh, short-handed way. Uh, they're not investing seriously in kettlebells because, as they say, as soon as the pandemic's over, all the kettlebells are coming from China. Uh, but uh, until right. then, they're willing to make a limited investment. Yeah, the artisanal handcrafted ones Art- from yes. the U.S. Will no longer be in demand. But uh, I really, I don't believe that article at all. Well, that's what it says. It's in the New York Times, honey. Well, yeah, but uh, Must be you're true. telling me more people, there's more demand for kettlebells than toilet paper? Uh, yes, there's been a bigger spike in demand. I, well, bigger spike, because yeah. before well, nobody wanted them. Don't get carried Now, <laughs> a lot of people think they want them. People are in the market saying, kettlebells or milk, what <sighs> am I getting this week? And they're getting the kettlebells. Uh, but you've got something about biking in Paris. Now, that's not a semi-positive situation, isn't it? The way they're responding. Well, it depends on how you uh, look at it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we of course, we're drawn to this idea because we're interested in bikes. Right. So every and every Paris. week, and we, Paris. We every Paris. week we have something to b- say about uh, bikes and yeah. uh, the um, coronavirus uh, landscape. Right. Um, but, and this week, a lot of talk uh, about in Europe how they're um, reopening, yeah. right? And part of the reopening is being able to get to work. Okay, now, the m- underground metros are in the process of reopening, right? But they're at much reduced capacity. Mm-hmm. So uh, these countries are promoting getting to work yeah. by bicycle. And how are they doing that? Well, uh, Paris is already, and, and some of the other countries as well, uh, 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 have been uh, expanding bike paths yeah. and, uh, you know, closing streets or allocating parts of streets uh, for bikes. Um, and so, you know, that's one aspect. But also in Paris, you can actually, um, the government is giving 500 euros uh, per person for as a, a subsidy to uh, buy an e-bike to get to work. Yeah, so that's, that's something like six hundred dollars and uh, five fifty euros to reimbursement for repairing an old bike really? of some sort as well. well that's something. Um, also, uh, I think um, in Italy, uh, similar thing: seventy percent uh, subsidy on any bikes you buy. Um, so. It's seventy uh, percent subsidy. Yeah. Well, that's bigger than what they're giving in in the UK. I shouldn't say Italy. I should say in Milan. Okay. Okay. So this is kind of an urban. But thing. that's a huge amount. An yeah. e-bike can cost you, you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars. Well, I don't know if the Italian ones are focused on e-bikes. Yeah. Maybe it's on bikes. Even so. Um, but uh, well, that's I a mean, that, it's yeah. funny because we've always seen Europeans riding more bikes to work right. than we noticed ever in America. Right. So in so some ways it's not new. Yeah, yeah, now they're doubling down. So they had a very cute pictures. This was a New York Times article I read, right. um, and they had very cute pictures of some very dapper, distingu- distinguished uh, 
gentleman uh, going to his job and yeah. he usually would take the metro now which was a 10 minute ride now he's on his bike for 20 minutes even though it's uphill all the way home he says he feels quite energized it was a cute bike it was a cute bike it was a peugeot yeah and it had a chain guard on it right because i mean they did show story. him yeah right. you don't want uh, you know right. chain marks all over your um you know snappy well, you, there are a lot of solutions to that. You can also have rubber chains and stuff like that. So there's things you can do to make it more doable as a commuting tool, to be sure. But this will be something. I mean, imagine if that happens. Imagine if a lot of people switch permanently to and biking. Here's an interesting aspect of it as well. Yeah. In Britain, yeah. they're forecasting, they hope, um, to save 8 billion pounds, okay, in health services oh, well, that's, by encouraging people, by getting more people on bikes. That, they see the whole nation's health improving well, so much that uh, well, it will save money so that's, on health care. There is clearly something to improving health. That's a totally made up number, so I'm not going to bother with the number. But the UK has a much more substantial bike tradition than the US does. I can tell you because I read this well, cycling plus yes. UK, uh, UK uh, bicycle magazine. And they do a lot of bikes that we would look at as, you know, semi-serious bikes. They call commuter bikes. Uh, some of them would drop handlebars and people. And you know what, how you can tell that the UK is serious? Because a lot of their very nice bikes come with fender guards. Right. Because you, you also don't want mud splashing, mud splashing up on your butt. Now, yeah. if, if you're just biking for recreation, you don't care about that so much. But the UK folks are riding serious bikes to work. Some but of here them. are the problems. Yeah. Injuries. Yeah. Injuries have really gone up. Right. Okay, because... Uh, well, I can tell you why. Why? Because UK roads aren't good. And what they write about every week in the bike magazines is if only the roads were better, they could really... I think the better. injuries apply um, to most of the countries. Okay. Everywhere people are riding more bikes, there are more well, sure. uh, injuries. Yeah. And uh, parking. Parking the bikes is tough? Where do you put all the darn well, bikes? We, we well, saw we, that. When we were in Amsterdam, yeah, we okay, when that. we were in... You know, the Netherlands in general, yeah. there were bikes everywhere, especially yeah. in the city. In Amsterdam, uh, you know, you're weaving your way on the sidewalks because of these huge clob clumps of bikes. Right. Plus, uh, we when we were doing that canal ride, right. we could see at the main train station, there was a parking garage for bikes. Bike, bike. So and could... It was loaded. And the other place people pike their, park their bikes? Yeah. They throw them in the canal. Well, that'll you're done with your bike. Boom. Well, Goodbye. That, those are if, different. If, kind if you, maybe if you're unscrupulous, no, if no, you're no. a thief no, no. and you're just going to steal your yeah, next those, bike those, when you yes, need it. Those are yeah, stolen bikes or the uh, cheap rental bikes. That uh, they're not even rental bikes. You, you take them for a ride. It's like the city bike system. Uh, there's a way. Why wouldn't you just put it? Why, why because you, you can't you just always put find, it at the dock. Because you can't always find a dock. Anyway, yeah. so. Uh, all right, so here, that's our, our weekly bike story. Well, it's not about a weekly bike story. But it, um, are, oh, and but let yeah. me just say one more thing. Yeah. Okay. God, I'm listening. Um, again, change, there's the this idea. Yeah. To go ahead and make as much noise as you want yeah, while sure. I'm talking. Go ahead. Um, yeah. The yeah. recurring idea in many of these uh, European popular touristic cities is getting back some of what we've lost. And people are noticing as they're biking to work, they're seeing more of their city and they're getting more out of it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, look, that's, uh, if there's a silver lining, then you got to look a little hard. That's the silver lining, right? Um, so, the, but, another, but look, just let's leave that behavior 
changing. You know, I just want to talk about gambling for a few minutes. Why? Because uh, that's where that's one of the things that's changing in a fundamental way. First of all, with respect to betting, you don't have betting on sports because you don't have sports. But what you have betting on is betting on esports. And I won't belabor this because we talked about esports before. Yes, we did. And right. we talked about betting. But on now e-sports. betting has increased. It wasn't. We didn't talk about betting so much. We talked about people following it, which I found strange enough. But yeah. now that people are betting on it, and but people are also betting on crazy ping pong games. I understand. Yeah. yeah, but that that goes into esports. In other words, esports uh, include both the kind of like League of Legends, uh, Counter Strike, all those kind of games, plus also Madden football. You can bet on all kinds of esports. Okay. And they say in the New York Times that they expect the handle for betting this year on esports to be worldwide approximately $14 billion, which is kind yeah. of insane. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where it's going, right? Then instead of betting on foot, real football, you're betting on something that's either simulated football or you're betting on e-games themselves. Um, but it's still just gambling, does it? So it's gambling, yeah. but it just shows that people have an appetite for gambling and they got to do it somewhere. Well, according to the journal, that's not really the only place to do it. As a matter of fact, what the journal says is what you're seeing. And I'll just read this from, from an, an article from Jason Zweig, who writes regularly about trading in the journal and their exchange section. He says, by shutting down the economy, the coronavirus unleashed a new generation of gamblers on the stock market. People, mainly young men, going stir-crazy from quarantine and the lack of professional sports to bet on. They've turned to trading stocks. To these thrill-seekers, the magnitude of moves matter as much as the direction. A big loss can be as much fun as a big gain. Which sounds So what's the deal? I mean, uh, they just, they're just seeing investing in the stock market in a different light? They're day traders. But they're okay. not day traders in a traditional but, but sense. But people have been doing this forever. But apparently... It's, but they just don't give a shit? It's increased, you know, manyfold. There are many more day traders. Uh, and he's, he speaks about uh, a particular community on Reddit, an online platform, which according uh, to uh, Mr. Zweig, uh, membership has doubled up to now 1.3 million members on this community. And what they're doing is they're just day trading like crazy. Uh, the community is called Wall Street Bets. Uh, and apparently they communicate. It's a social thing. And it's moving a lot of money. And it's even, according to his wife, affecting the market a great deal. Uh, he talks to the founder, a fellow named uh, Jamie Rogozinski. Rogozinski says to these folks, there's no sense in looking at a company's balance sheet or figuring out how to do a discounted cash flow analysis. They just regard the volatility as an opportunity for fun. Again, this is a serious article in the Wall Street Journal. So it, I'm not it's, saying it's not serious. It, it seems, just doesn't seem that different to me. It's just the same well, thing. That's, so that's the question. Know? I mean, the question is, uh, how different is it? Now, let me give you two other examples, and you tell me. They're just calling it a game as opposed to before they were pretending, pretending they're trying to make a living. Well, but they even... But the they were says, always... People were always addicted to day trading. Yes, but the day trading... You know, because it was never... But, it was never an efficient way to make money. Well, some so people had think to it is. enjoy some the people, thrill. Okay? <laughs> but you could make money. That's the question. Is there day trading? Is it gambling or is it investing? Let me give you two other examples, okay? It's gambling. Uh, well, 
you already in that camp, but a lot of people feel you investing, which has some risk to it, not calling it gambling, call it investing. Let me give you a concrete example. Hertz, as you know, filed for bankruptcy. Right. Okay. What's going on with Hertz, which is unique, is that even while it's filed for bankruptcy, Hertz is selling stock in the company that's filed for bankruptcy. Okay. People don't do that. All right. And the reason is because generally in a bankruptcy, after you pay off all the obligors, all the lenders of all sorts, there's no money left to pay the common stockholders. So how can you possibly sell stock? Yeah. But the market is going so crazy that the price of the shares of Hertz in bankruptcy has gone up. Even yeah, that makes no sense to it me. It makes no sense to anybody. And in fact, the bond prices have not gone up because the concern is that the bonds may not be paid in full. If the bonds are not paid in full, the common stockholders will get nothing. So there's this disconnect. But on the other hand, and I know the lawyer who's handling the Hertz bankruptcy. It's not at my firm. I just know the guy. He's an aggressive guy, but he's not irresponsible. They say, look, we're selling this. Maybe we'll come back. Maybe we'll be worth something. Maybe be worth nothing. It's all full disclosure. And people are buying it. And it's one of the stocks that Zweig talks about in his article about playing the market as a whole new meaning. He says, what the heck is going on with Hertz? Um, New York so the, the title of this article was More Signs of the Apocalypse? I don't know what to make of it. I'll give you one final example, and I think this one okay. is generally positive. I think you will, too. The um, Ford Foundation is uh, doing something that is pretty, pretty interesting. So they have, like a lot of foundations, a huge endowment. Uh, it's in, they have a, um, it's in the billions of dollars. It's a, you know, it's, it's a zillion, and they're one of the biggest there is. Well, like a lot of other foundations, um, they, uh, well, foundations generally, uh, number one, have an obligation to distribute 5% of their endowment every year. They're not supposed to just hoard it, especially if it's a foundation like Ford. And yet uh, they seem to pretty much hoard it. Well, they do. That's the problem. Yes. Okay. And when you get to a situation like this, a lot of them in the article says regard the 5% not only as a minimum, but as a maximum. Right. And when you get to a situation like we have now, there are a lot of organizations, let's call arts organizations, who look to the Ford Foundation for contributions and support. And a lot of foundations in these times, mainly all of them, say, hey, market's down for me too. So my endowment was, you know, a billion before. Now it's only $750 million. I can't be giving out money, right? And uh, that's obviously not satisfactory in some ways, but that is the general foundation reaction. But the Ford Foundation is still not comfortable breaking into its foundation too much. So here's what they're doing. They're going to borrow a billion dollars, borrow a billion dollars, and use the borrowings to distribute money to grantees, right? So they're going to actually give money out, but they're not invading their corpus. They're not invading their endowment when they do that because they borrowed a billion dollars. What they're betting on, and this is about the market and betting, is they're betting on the money being so cheap, interest rates being so low, that the cost of borrowing is going to be covered by the upswing in their investments over the next few years because they're going to invest part of the billion that they borrow. So they're taking a risk. You can call it gambling, call it whatever, but it does seem like a prudent thing for a foundation to do if they're there to help people, right? Right. Okay. So that's a good thing. I guess so. I, I still don't understand. I, I would think that the endowment was there right. to pay for these things they're, anyway. They're very conservative. And, and you know... You yeah, but what, what is it doing? Don't people give money to these institutions? 
you know, contribute to I, the endowment. I look. I can't to, justify that for so it will be used, not so it will be just let, for. Let me just say this. What? I think the Ford Foundation at least is being creative, and they're taking a little bit of a risk with their endowment because the market may not go up, and they will have to take out of their endowment. But when you look at something like Princeton or other universities who have endowments in, you know, I don't know if it's a billion or eight hundred million, doesn't make any difference, right? They're they're saying, hey, our hands are tied. Times are tough. Uh, we can't be invading our endowment. That's their attitude. There are very strange attitudes about folks endowment. You see it in the in the Metropolitan Opera. You see it in the Metropolitan Museum. Right. All right. So it's weird. All right. I've spoken enough about finance. You should talk about something else. People have heard enough about this. Talk about museum museum update, Thompson. That's what we no, need. Well, ding, ding, ding. Yes. Uh, the Van Gogh Museum is opening back up. Good okay. news. It's Good been news. closed. Which is where? And Which Van Gogh museum are we talking about? It's in Amsterdam. Okay. You've been there. I've been to a Van Gogh museum in Amsterdam, but my guess is that Van Gogh is such a big deal that there's more than one this Van Gogh is the museum. the Van Gogh museum. Okay. I've been there. Okay. Of course I've been there. And I've uh, been there all they, the Talk about the you know group that's taken a huge hit. They, yeah. they estimate they've lost about $4.3 million from being closed the last 11 weeks. That seems like a hell of a okay. lot. I, I and, um, well, uh, they, um, well, I mean, it's lost revenue. They depend, uh, their revenue from uh, ticket sales right. and the cafe right. and, and the, the shops, shops. Yeah. Uh, pays about 89% of their budget. Mm -hmm. okay. Good, good. Um, so when that's not happening, yeah. a lot's not happening. Usually... Um, they have about 6,000 visitors a day over the course of yeah. uh, six hours. That's a real museum, I can yeah. see. Yeah, yeah. And uh, now that they're closed, uh, well, then now that they're reopening, they're going to be able to have um, just uh, 750 per day. Hmm. Okay. But it's also back to the same old thing. Yeah. Now... You know, people who live in and around can get Amsterdam museum, right. can get into the museum. Good. Okay, and they're delighted by that. Amsterdam is another highly visited, you know, busy with tourists right. uh, city. And, uh, you know, people feel a little bit overrun right. by all the tourism. And yet it's the tourism that really, you know, uh, pays a lot of the bills. Um this museum is a little tougher spot because it's not like a Dutch national museum. It's got to pay its own freight. And uh, so um, there's no one to turn to if things are bad, except the cultural minister has assured uh, the um, director of the museum that uh, they will, you know, no one's going to let the uh, Van Gogh Museum go under. Um, so, uh, you know, she's reassured by this. Now, you may be wondering, who is the director of this museum? It's Emily Gordenker, or Gordenker. And uh, she just became mm -hmm. the director. She became, Good time, imagine yeah. getting this great new job, mm -hmm. and uh, boom, the museum is entirely shut down. Uh, so that's too bad. So I was looking a little bit at Emily and what she's been doing before, and it turns out Emily and I are rather well connected. Yeah. Okay. Unbelievably so. Okay. How so? Uh, well, uh, she was born in Princeton. Okay. So we, right. you know, her father was a professor at Princeton. So right. we have right. uh, that connection. Uh, her parents, one of them's Dutch, one of them's uh, American, or something like that. So that's her Dutch connection. Um, she uh, actually um, went to Columbia. She got her master's at Columbia. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I got, yeah, I got you, my you master's got in Columbia. Master's thought, yeah. Okay, not in the same subject. I was in the business school, right. you know, not with the art historians. Mm -hmm. um, not much contact there. Um, but uh, uh, so we have that. Um, she, uh, she had some interesting jobs. Oh, did I tell you? She actually worked at the Met. Metropolitan Museum. Mm -hmm. You know, I had an internship yes. at the Metropolitan Museum. Not only this, yeah. that, and yeah. then and then she had like five years. She was at the National um, Museum of Scotland. Mm -hmm. Okay, Good. so she's there. She went from there to the Moritz House. What's the Moritz House? Oh, it's you know where the girl with the pearl earring. Yeah, 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 you yeah, know, yeah, in yeah. the Hague. Okay, right. yeah. charming little museum. S small, it's very small, small, but it's... but very you right. know. Um, a wonderful collection, right? Uh, and uh, um, she was there, you know, a number of years, like twelve years. Mm. Okay, I mean, this is all kind of fantastic. This is really, you know, she's rising through the ranks right. pretty quickly. Well, as it turns out, yeah. her grandmother's second husband was also a director of the Barrett's House. Oh, okay. okay, so these things do not happen by accident, and uh, so. And now she's at the Van Gogh Museum, and I've been to the Van Gogh Museum. <laughs> so we have many uh, connections. But she seems like a, a delightful and interesting person, and I wish her great luck. And uh, Van Gogh Museum, fun place to be. Yeah, no as, doubt as about is, that. The, the Moritz House, uh, you know. But it's, it's like a an entirely house. different experience. But, yeah. you know, oh, the Hague is so the Hague is a wonderful place. Yeah, wonderful. To go. It's like a, kind of the opposite of the um, Amsterdam. I wouldn't say the opposite, but it's a very clean and uh, genteel city. Uh, no hubbub. It's uh, well, we we shouldn't say that. We always have a skewed view yeah. of the cities because we're in the nice part of town where uh, you can park a bike. Yeah, you know, but, but it's, we don't see the downtown. The town seems all nice, but okay. anyway, all right. all right. Let's get some real sports. Let's get our hands dirty. Okay, there are no real sports, but how about in 1973? This is the time of year, as you well know, being a uh, sport of kings, racing girl as you are, when the uh, Belmont is generally run. The Belmont being the third leg of the Triple Crown. The Belmont being the classic mile and a half. You know, there are very few uh, races that are mile and a half. And in fact, it's a very long distance for a horse. And, they, and, and they're not doing the Belmont this year? They're going to do it in a few months. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, they're gonna, it's going to be the first of the Triple Crowns, which is screwed up. Well, that's a up. mistake. Yeah. We'll get it's to too that. long. Well, it, it, they're, they're shortening it this year. Oh, really? Yeah. It's so it's crazy. not really the Belmont. No, I, I agree with you. But you know what's interesting? That one of the reasons that the Belmont is a mile and a half is the Belmont track is one of the few tracks that's a mile and a half. So it's uh, they can actually do it. So in any event, uh, you've been to Belmont, haven't you? So you just have to run around once? Yeah. That makes it so simple. Yeah, it I does. like that. Yeah. There's a beauty in simplicity. So in 1973, Secretary is running to try to be the first horse to win the Triple Crown in 25 years, which was a big deal at the time. It had been many, many years since anyone run the Triple Crown. He uh, had won the uh, Derby in record time. He had won the Preakness, and now he's running the Belmont. And here's the amazing thing about this. He comes out of that race so fast, right? And he's running so free and easy that at the one and a quarter mile mark, one and a quarter is the same distance as the Kentucky Derby. Okay. At the one and a quarter mile mark of the Belmont, he has a faster time than he had in the Derby. Okay. And he still has a quarter mile to go. And people know this at the time? Yes. Were they going people crazy? People are going insane. Do you remember watching this? Yes. Okay. 
Okay. Were you going insane? I think I was in commons watching this, honestly. And uh, at Princeton. So, yes. Working and, reunions. Yes. And here's, yeah. and here's what happened. He won the race uh, in, by 31 lengths. I'm showing you a photograph where the jockey is looking back. 31 the is a horse. lot. 30, 31 is a lot. Let me put this in a That's horse race. many noses. Yes. In a horse race, if you win by two lengths, you won by a lot. He won by 31 lengths. He broke the Belmont record by almost three full seconds, by two and three-fifths of a second, which is insane. Those are some drugs. Yeah. <laughs> there were no drugs ever associated really? with the cemetery. Really? The greatest racehorse of all time. Okay. Uh, that's all I'm saying. So that was, I thought it was just interesting memory. Uh, and there's never going to be another horse like Secretariat, uh, so they often say. There was also, I wanted to mention briefly, just because uh, we had an interesting conversation about it. This fellow named... Uh, uh, Murray Olderman died, 98 years old, says a rare double threat. Why is, was Murray, Murray Olderman a double threat? He was a sports writer and a sports cartoonist. Two points. Number one, that he could write and he could draw. And number two, as I learned when I spoke to you, is that not everybody remembers that there used to be regularly hand-drawn cartoons in the sports pages. Yeah, I have no idea. That was a standard I'm sure thing. I never looked at them. Yes, and always, what, what uh, newspaper? You, well, the Post and the Daily News had it. Times okay. never had it. But uh, and you think they had that in like the Washington Post. Uh, you know, I know nothing about the Washington Post. Okay. Uh, and as you can see, the way these were drawn, it fits with the times. The these the figures were heroic. They were drawn in a heroic way, with uh, yes. great sunshine behind them, yes. with pensive looks, uh, with engaging uh, views. Uh, and Olderman, in, in, in the article about him, in response to some questions a few years ago, says that's what they set out to do. They set out to make these people look as heroic as possible. And Olderman was very interesting because uh, who writes and draws at the same time? As, as Olderman said, himself said in, that, uh, in the interview that I'm talking about, he said there were a lot of guys who could write. There are a lot of guys who can draw. Very few people could do both. Uh, so that's interesting, but that's the way it used to be. In the sports pages. Well, that's interesting. I really, uh, you know, I feel like I've seen things like that in random old-time magazines or something. But I don't remember ever seeing it in the newspaper. Oh, it used to be a staple. You'd have a drawing like that every day. And did you look for them? Uh, no, I mean, you couldn't miss them. I was reading the sports, and it was part of in what the you sports. saw. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I didn't read the sports, yeah. I guess. Um, in the Washington Post or... The Washington Star. Yeah. Well, Post was the morning paper. Star was the evening paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, those in the know, I think, got both. Unless you had... Well, never mind. Um, all right. So speaking of reading. Yes. Okay. Um, you know. Right. Reading. Now that there is so much spare time around. Right. Um, I've been flailing about looking for more books. And of course, yes, I am delighted with the uh, Inspector Montalbano oh, yes. books. I'm working my... Right. way through uh, language uh, uh, and the imagery continues to be a bit salty salty salty, salty. i like that term and um so uh it's you know but so. it, you know you, you can't be just having that much fun all the time right. so you know i had in mind that you know i was looking for something else and uh, wall street journal this weekend presented me with a fabulous alternative a book called au revoir tristesse by comedian Viv Grosskop. And uh, it's, uh, 
it's described as a witty and informative inquiry into whether French literature can improve your life. Okay. Uh, as I said, uh, Grosskopf is a comedian. Um, and uh, interesting about her heritage, she always thought she came from Russians, mm -hmm. okay, a Russian background, and uh, a uh, relative of hers discovered that uh, the name Grosskopf is actually Yiddish for fathead. Oh, God. And that uh, the first member of her family came from Poland. Mm. Uh, so uh, a little tidbit there. Anyway, it seems like it's a fairly amusing look at, um, you know, what uh, embodies uh, French culture as seen in uh, these various uh, classics. Um, she's, as I said, she's a stand-up comedian. She also did recaps for The Guardian oh, of yeah. Poldark. Did you watch it? Is that the ones you used to read? No, I don't think so because I was I was reading uh, it, it was American Source like um, New York Magazine it. or something. It could have been, been the same. I don't know, but it is true that um, those recaps for various series uh, can be much better yeah. than the actual series, sure and I love those. Yeah, so um, she seems quite funny, um, and uh, it says she steals the show from her ostensible subject, French literature, using ironic autobiography, solid scholarship to guide us into the steamy territory of modern French letters. And, uh, you know, the article begins saying on one side, um, well, uh, describes the gulf between the uh, French and British culture. She's British. And uh, says on one side, the frogs, the guillotine, the bidet, and a relentless diet of rationalism, adultery, and pastry. On the other side, les Anglo-Saxons, the pasty, beef-eating Philistines whose history has been one long Brexit and who prefer their fellow hypocrites, les Américains. <laughs> and uh, apparently, it, it seems like a fun book uh, filled with uh, interesting little, um, you know, details about various famous writers. Um, Stendhal wore a toupee and had a, a variety of nicknames or pseudonyms, actually, including Cornichon, the pickle, mm. and uh, this very funny long name, Louis Alexandre César Bombay which uh, Ms. Grosskopf sees as the perfect way to introduce yourself after a long night of drinking. Um, she, you know, crazy little details. Uh, Balzac drank 50 cups of coffee a day. Yeah, really. Voltaire had him beat with eighty, yeah. um, and then but also uh, insights into uh, the stories of Colette, Françoise Seguin, and Marguerite Duras, uh, which uh, were uh, pretty interesting as well. So I you I bought the book. The book. You bought I the book. bought the book. Bought I'm very it? I'm very excited. If it's funny and uh, you know if it's got a good sense of humor about uh, French culture, and she sums up that. Um, the French uh, je ne sais quoi as a talent for the jeu d'esprit, a sense of joie de vivre, and uh, they reserve the hours from four to six for extramarital maneuvers. Really? I mean, what's not to like? And she said, what is missing from my life that I have adopted the illusion that being French would somehow help? Um, so... Um, 
right. You got that on the Kindle? You don't have to be a savant to enjoy this book, uh, says the Dominic Green, who's writing the article. But a little schoolroom French will go a long way, and Au Revoir Tristesse will make a witty, seductive companion should you find yourself unaccountably alone between four and six in the afternoon. I already think of you as a witty, seductive companion, so there you go. Well, you're set, but what am I to do? (laughs) It's true. That's true. You have me there. Uh, Okay. By George, it's almost four. Let's wrap this baby up. Well, uh, yeah. Um, So there was an article that I'm now searching for. Uh, Here we go. Uh, Yeah, we are going to wrap it up. Some possible solutions here for COVID-19. And I'll start with the technological, and you'll go beyond that. Three things. Number one, improve filtration. An article in the journal, The New Germ Warfare. Uh, And uh, improve filtration, we've talked about a little bit before, at least privately. And they say that filtration can make a huge difference. And a lot of uh, buildings built in the 70s or 80s don't have it. But new buildings are certainly outfitted in such a way. So this is the air. The air. The air coming in and out. And to improve the air quality and to filter it quickly so that indoor air is not quite as risky. Make it more like outdoor air. That's number one. That's simple. Buildings have heating systems, but there's not always adequate flow of the... But new buildings can have it. And and look, it's just money, right? The second of of the three things they have is something called um, photohydroionization. And uh, because ionized particles, uh, those are that are charged positively and negatively, can inactivate, inactivate airborne pathogens. Uh, so that's part of what uh, they're doing in a lot of places is using this ionization to sort of disinfect uh, things as much as possible, including the New York subway system. It's so is this the ultraviolet light thing? No, I'm no, coming to that's that. that's different? Yeah, they're doing a lot of things in the New York subway, which is interesting because until COVID-19, they did nothing for the New York subway. It's amazing how the New York subways looked, smelled like crap for years and years and years, and now people care what the subways are like for a different reason. People always cared. Well, people cared, but the government did not. Right. Now, it, it's, it, nobody, could, it, nobody gets more attention. Nothing gets more attention than New York subways, and good luck with that. Because, of course, the problem isn't cleaning the cars. The problem is the, the crowding in the subways and the social distancing. So what they're doing, I don't know. And, but number three... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What? Are you saying they, they don't have to clean the cars? I'm all for cleaning the subways, but it's never going to satisfy people who are concerned about COVID-19. Because you're going to get a crowded subway, the cleanest car in the world, and you have people on top of each other. What are you going to do? Right. Okay. But uh, so the subways are just a tough thing. But the third is the, m- the most interesting thing to me, and that is what you mentioned a moment ago, which is ultraviolet light. And here's something which is just not logical to me, but it's the way the world is. Uh, high frequency ultraviolet light, known as UVC, has long been used to sterilize hospital rooms, but it's dangerous for humans. Here's the trick. It turns out that even higher frequency UV light, called far UVC, is, according to its proponents, safe for humans. You double down <laughs> and it's safe. And as a result, and they know this. Oh, no. Because well, they well, have what some, if the machine just slips and goes no, down a notch? You know this because there's a population we'll of, die. of 100 hairless mice that have been living with UVC, far UVC, for almost a year and have shown no ill effects. Except they're still uh, hairless, hairless mice. Um, and uh, so they say that uh, cupcake fans walking into New York City locations of Magnolia Bakery will soon encounter this. 
Then when they walk in, they're going to a cleansing chamber. They'll be bathed in this, uh, this UVC light for 20 seconds and they'll walk in. In other words, whenever you walk into establishment, potentially, if this uh, works out, you'll just be bathed in light, you'll walk in, people will be not concerned. That this you're just sounds the like one of those things where then years later they're going to realize that uh, it ha- actually had these, yeah. you know, 92 well, effects on your liver a, or something. It's a somewhat and, negative and, perspective, but I can understand your doubting, uh, Thomas. I don't know. It sounds too um, spacey. Well, you're going to have to sell it? people on that. Otherwise... Uh, no one's buying cupcakes. Suddenly, the mask is looking very good to me. Well, you have another solution here, so let's let's get right to that in our last story. Uh, yeah, and this is this is a little bit on the odd side. Right. There's an article um, in the New York Times titled "A Century Ago: A Cemetery Wedding to End a Pandemic," and apparently. Um, uh, there was a tradition, actually, in Poland uh, that uh, you could end disease by having a wedding in a cemetery. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, seems to become popular, well, it was used to uh, hopefully uh, eradicate cholera in 1892. Right, but it's... Uh, it's, and, it's and, and people didn't necessarily... All but it's, it's a blue. Jewish tradition, isn't it? It's a Jew- Jewish tradition, and it's called the Schwarze Kesene. Which is the Black Wedding. The Black Wedding. And um, so what you do is two people, uh, you find two people who are willing to get married in a cemetery. You hold, um, and you hold the ceremony, okay? And the hope is that God will be so moved by these um, this humble man and woman joining in marriage in the presence of the dead that uh, he will god will be called to remove this affliction um and uh so in 18 no 1918 right there's a uh, record of a wedding being held in uh, mount uh hebron cemetery that's in queens Mm -hmm. okay and uh there was this uh couple and very often it was just uh you just take two people who it seems like they couldn't even refuse you know just uh you know they were forced to um well not forced but they were willing to do it you know they uh were not necessarily uh, they were often down on their luck or whatever and people offered the stage an elaborate wedding and apparently according to the article in the times yeah. Which includes the, the blurb from the contemporaneous uh, paper. Well, time. it was reported in the newspaper. Right. Yeah. They were, it was a big uh, event. People yeah. uh, contributed all kinds of things and thousands of people attended. Yeah. 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 So it was Rose and uh, Abraham. Mm-hmm. And at times did a little bit of research uh, to find out if, you know, what happened to these people. They actually couldn't find out much. And uh, as I said, not everybody uh, thought this was uh, a, um, you know, a well-founded idea. Um, in the, one of the, you showed me a clip uh, from a Jewish newspaper where it was described as a deplorable exhibition of benighted superstition. Right. So where does uh, religion end and superstition begin is, is the yeah. question. But what I love about this article is this. So when you see the article in the uh, in the paper here, it has the account of the wedding. And what do you see next to the account of the wedding? Influenza nearing end. <laughs> exactly. Okay. That's so, uh, Is that a coincidence, uh, yeah. Uh 
Uh, I think not. I think not. So, <laughs> so there you go. It's proof positive. It was in black and white. It was in 1918 and uh, did the trick. Yeah. Great improvement. And the influenza situation was reported for the 24 hours ending at 10 o'clock this morning. That's the 24 hours after that wedding. Exactly yes. right. I mean, so, I, look, it's at least <clears throat> as as potentially useful as the so, ultraviolet light. I mean, I, yeah. I, stick with your ionization, you know, yeah. and your ultraviolet if you want. But Schwarzer Cassena may be the way to go. I think so. I think we ought to look into that. All right. So uh, that's all we have for this week. Uh, this is Dan Abduhoff. And Tamsin Granger. For Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. All right. See you next week.